In the words of historian and noted Russian scholar Dr. Matthew Raphael Johnson, the Soviet Union was the only empire to fall without a war. To the ordinary Russian citizen, however, the 1990s were no less tragic as life expectancy, average income, and birth rates all plummeted as crime, alcoholism, and unemployment all rose. As the nation descended into the depths of despair, a new oligarch class emerged controlling the commanding heights of production, principally in the natural resource and heavy industry sectors, coming to dominate not just the economy but with politics under the Russian president Boris Yeltsin. Only until the current president, Vladimir Putin, rose to power, ironically with the help of major oligarch Boris Berezovsky, who was later exiled along with many others, did the Russian people begin to recover economically and in national pride. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military-industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been time to The Hello, welcome to the show. I'm Nick, and I'm joined today by Adam and Hans, as well as our returning guest, Dr. Matthew Raphael Johnson. How are you doing, Dr. Johnson? I didn't get much sleep last night, um, so if I say anything weird, just uh, just let it go, please. <laughs> All right. So we had Dr. Johnson on previously to discuss the creation of the Soviet Union. And it, we found it to be only fitting to have him return to discuss the 1990s when they had the dissolution of that Jewish-created nightmare experiment in human cruelty and slavery. And despite it coming to an end, the period of its dissolution was not you know, the days of wine and roses. It was a period marked by murder, poverty, criminality, theft— Etc. Etc. And we're going to get into that today. So, where would you like to start, Doctor Johnson? I think I'm going to start by saying that I think this is the only example of an empire to completely collapse in a very short period of time without a war. Um, depending on who you read, between 70 and 80 percent of the old Soviet economy was dismantled or otherwise liquidated. Uh, which is unprecedented. And during World War II, maybe it was it was half that. Um, to put it as simply as possible, it's one of these situations where I just know too much about the, the issue and I can get into detail. Um, by the 1970s, um, Soviet capital was beginning to break down. And there wasn't the surplus there to rebuild it. Everything that was put together um, after World War II in the 50s and early 60s was starting to, starting to creak a little bit. And while the technological revolution was taking over in the West, um, Russia was still, you know, 
dealing with with heavy industry and um, uh, diverting more and more money into into defense and and police bodies. And they were hi- highly dependent on the natural resource sector, especially in oil, if I'm not mistaken. And when the price of oil collapsed in the mid '80s, I think it really hurt their economy. If I'm not, if I'm not wrong about that. Well, the oil uh, oil dependency is wildly exaggerated. That that may have been may have been more the case in the Soviet era. Um, according to the World Bank, Norway is far more dependent on on oil exports than than Russia is. Actually, Canada more so. Um, but um, so that doesn't, you know, if, if you have actually done a regression analysis of this where periods of economic growth and oil prices um, uh, tend to co-vary, but because economic growth and oil prices co-vary anyway. So if you control for that fact, you realize that there really isn't, isn't much of a relationship. Now, and that's domestically. Now, exports is a different story, but they were exporting, you know, um, much at the time. I mean, now, of course, it's a different story. It's still between eight and nine percent of the of the GDP is is based on is based on that. A lot of economists are lazy and they say, well, people don't really know anything. We can say what we want. So they'll say, oh, the oil prices went down. So uh, so that happened. Now, the Soviet era, I think, was a bit of a different story because their high tech sector provided mostly by the U.S. Uh, simply couldn't keep pace. Um, but I don't think that was, you know, that that was the main issue. The CIA didn't think it was. And I, I distinctly remember reading this. CIA was talking about how strong the Soviet economy was in early 1990. And how they're going to make the switch to light industry and consumer goods and everything else as it was falling apart. I also want to and point then out. And by, oh, so, sorry, Dr. Johnson. Yeah, one last thing. I want to point out that academics in the U.S., Every major university failed to predict this, um, which is bizarre that you have people allegedly watching this, you know, full time and no one saw this coming. There was one exception. Of course, that was Solzhenitsyn. Um, but the generally the academic establishment was saying that the Soviet it's, it's still it's still the wave of the future. They just have to get over their addiction to heavy industry and and things will be better uh, as late as, as late 1989. So it, it, just just to give you an example of, of how ridiculously useless the the American academic is. Well, uh, in ni- by 1990, you also had a lot of gold and foreign currency reserves disappearing from Russia, something to the tune of 30 billion dollars in gold and 15 billion dollars in foreign currency. Uh, I, I'm sure everyone knows this, but to put in perspective, 1991, uh, specifically December 8th of 1991, was the formal dissolution of the USSR. So after that, you had, you know, massive price inflation and all kinds of social problems and that were starting to come with that. You know, you had uh, increase of uh, male mortality up to 53 percent, uh, women 27 uh, percent, and from uh, 1992 to 1997, there was something along the order of 230,000 suicides. I mean, some of those are probably not suicides, but that's what they were, you know, marked down as. Uh, you had 159,000 deaths from bad vodka, and uh, something close to, you know, 170,000 murders. All the while, you also have. You know, sex slavery taking place, uh, declining birth rate, children being abandoned, uh, 
and many other such problems. In fact, you know, you had a situation where essentials like food were very expensive, but you had all these people who, you know, you had these former Olympic athletes and soldiers, Spetsnaz veterans of the Afghan wars who were, you know, available for mercenary work, for violence, uh, you know, on the cheap. Uh, yeah, and that's that's the good news. I mean, if you were following Russian politics at the time, uh, it just was it was a picture that yeah, there's a reason that people wanted Stalin back. Um because the Stalinist era was relatively mild compared to what was happening here. You mentioned mortality. The, um, the lifespan of the average Russian male dipped under 60 for a few years. Um, I wouldn't trust a lot of local um, records at the time, although those that you cited um, are probably a little low, but they're, they're reflected by, by other people. Uh, because the state had collapsed, and the state collapsed because of what the group of people who we now know as as oligarchs, uh, almost entirely Hindu, as you guys all well know, um, <laughs> and ultimately, you know, it comes down to this: the U.S., the World Bank, and people like Chubais around Boris Yeltsin um, wanted to quote privatize the state-run economy. As any halfwit could predict, it was an absolute disaster. Um, the Elton government essentially they 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 had this naive idea to spread ownership and shares of of state companies very widely to essentially buy support. Um, but so each citizen got a value a, a voucher that pretty much was the same. They divided the the GDP and you know, gave each each person a voucher within a week. It was in the hands of, of people who were willing to pay cash for them immediately at a discount. Now, I think that economists couldn't think of this. You know, of course they did. Um, and, you know, the point was for Yeltsin to speed this up as quickly as possible so that his opponents uh, simply couldn't reasonably uh, want to um, renationalize, renationalize the state. Well, one of the oligarchs that... Uh uh, Putin eventually put in jail, uh, Mikhail Khodorkovsky. He um, he became rich with the oil giant Yukos, uh, but his first company during this privatization period was this bank he called Menetep. And if I recall correctly, I read a book called The Oligarchs uh, by David Hoffman. It's quite good. Uh, and he used the bank I believe, to buy up a lot of these vouchers in order to uh, obtain a larger share of uh, the various sectors of the economy that he wanted to control. And I, I think it was by using finance, he was able to buy a lot of these things for a lot cheaper than he'd otherwise have to pay. Um, and it, it, it gave him a leg up in order to secure the he, ultimate position he let, got. He also created uh, something I found amusingly uh, called the European Union Bank, which was uh, in uh, headquartered in Antigua. <laughs> he had a lot of really a... funny, uh, I want to call it like Alex P. Keaton moments, where he was writing these books about how great it is to be a capitalist and all these things and the new Russia. Um, I don't know how much of that was sincere or just youth or naivete, but 
uh, yeah, he really loved this this new era and opportunity. Well, when he was finally brought to justice in a fit of anti-Semitism, he was probably the richest man in Russia, as I understand it. And I would like to talk about some of these names in particular. Uh, For example, the, the people behind the coalition behind the Yeltsin regime. Let's talk about Berezovsky and Abramovich and uh, Smolensky, etc. Dr. Johnson. Yeah, that's that's definitely a good one. Boris Yeltsin. How do you how do you elect a president with an approval rating of roughly zero? Um, Well, a lot of these guys had already controlled the press. Um, It was in January of 96 at Davos at the World Economic Forum. Uh, they promised to bankroll the upcoming election uh, in exchange for, you know, not not being prosecuted. Because by this point, Yeltsin was ruling by decree. He had shut down the parliament. He had shut down anyone who disagreed here. And, uh, you know, he, he put up about maybe 140 or 150 million dollars right away for Yeltsin's uh, reelection. They wrote a fake biography of him. Uh, they created this concept, this this fool of uh, Vladimir Zyunovsky, who's a complete phony, who was one of them for a long time, and uh, they made him out to be the the Nazi, who of course he's a Jew, um, was going to take over unless Boris Yeltsin was was elected. Um, and this was an, an an absolute an absolute disaster. And what Yeltsin was willing to do is look the other way for some of these scams. In exchange for for their support, um, nothing here was legal. Nothing here was. I mean, understand that Boris Yeltsin used force and violence and ruled by decree for most of this stuff. These are precisely the things that the West condemns other presidents for, including you know what's happening in in Belarus. Except in, the, in their case, they were successful. Um, in this case, it was it was an absolute an absolute disaster. Uh, one of the things that Berezovsky did early on um, is that he knew that the central bank was printing money all over the place. So inflation was going to become uh, totally out of control. So he was in the automotive business at first, uh, VAZ, Auto VAZ was the name of the company. And he would take these cars, what, what it amounts to consignment, and then he promised to pay the original owner at a much later time when the money was almost worthless. So these were scams that only that type of person could ever actually come up with. Um, and uh, he, he, there were several assassination attempts against him, and these assassination attempts were, were built up like he was his victim for, for liberty. Um, One I of guess, which uh, his driver was, I think, decapitated in front of him. That was true. Uh, he was injured, I think. Um, but And then I think ultimately, at least the press said, uh, this was a way to he was he was becoming a monopolist. This was a way to stop that. These were this one oligarch against another. And it's not an accident that was as this stuff was going on, he bought uh, ORT, uh, used to be Channel One, uh, state North television North. network. Yeah, he, he did this, um, and a number of the old guard were killed there at the station, and there was never any investigation, um, and. Or you know, this was these were you know they he controlled 
the TV uh, media at the time. And so he was the one who laid out what this coming election was going to be with Yeltsin. And of course, it was essentially one long Yeltsin um, uh, campaign. So as the state began to collapse, um, these guys would, Borzowski, all, all these guys were willing to loan the state money in exchange for more equity. So the more, so that was one of the reasons the privatization was a complete disaster because they would loan him money in exchange for these, for these, um, for these coupons. And by the way, I know, you know, I think George Soros had, was, was involved in this too, although he later um, uh, bowed out, I'm pretty sure. Uh, he did the same thing with Aeroflot, uh, put all of his friends there. Uh, Kodakowski was there with Yukos. And this is essentially how, um, and don't, don't forget the CIA's role. The West was heavily involved. You guys remember the Time Magazine um, cover with Yeltsin saying the Yanks step in or something like that, where, uh, you know, Time Magazine says it wasn't for American interference. Yeltsin, Yeltsin could never possibly have been elected. It was a completely fraudulent election in every possible way. I don't care how much you control. Everyone hated him. Everyone hated liberalism, that, everything that he represented. Uh, and, and, you know, he was elected through, through fraud. Every single thing that the U.S. condemns, whether, I don't know, whether it be Lukashenko or Putin or anyone else, uh, for they bankrolled for Yeltsin. So I think it's well, almost, here's, that's how it goes. He, he was also moving into, I mean, basically all of the key industries, you know, aluminum, oil, lumber. And he was uh, he was selling. They were exporting this to the uh, United States and the profits, that is, they're moving to the United States and Switzerland. and. I know that one in one case, you, you know, you had a uh, one of the the director at the uh, refiner oil uh, petroleum refinery in Omsk was found floating in the river. You know, there were a lot of assassinations that were taking place here. And I think one of the questions that I would have when reading this, I, I think I know the answer, but I'd like to hear it from you, Dr. Johnson. And that is what was interesting is that often what was happening is that the, these formerly state-controlled industries were selling out not to the highest bidder, but to the lowest bidder. Well, these weren't competitive bids. Um, that's simply, you know, that's not how it worked. There's simply no way to make this a competitive situation when you already have a group of very powerful people with a lot of um, uh, liquidity uh, on their hands. Um, it just didn't matter. The the market had absolutely no relevance to any of this uh, at the time. So, and not to mention the fact you had, you know, when people, when average people got these things, they were desperate. They were selling these coupons to intermediaries controlled by these guys for, for a few dollars or for a few rubles. And it didn't matter anyway, since the currency was going to collapse in 1997 regardless. So it was very easy to do this. It was just... Um, you know, these were not competitive. They had nothing to do with it. Uh, and you guys remember that the State Department sued Harvard University precisely for this reason, because Harvard University was involved in this using taxpayer mm -hmm. money to set up these essentially scams. Can you talk about Jeffrey Sachs? The State Department. Well, I mean, it's not entirely irrelevant. Uh, more, more like Lawrence Summers, but it doesn't matter. It's the same who was president uh, at the time. And, um, the, of course, the State Department won. 
they said, and, and the, the court made it very clear. They said, you, you guys destroyed a country. Lauren Summers, of course, was, was a big part of this. They shut down the Institute for Transitional Economies, I think it was called. And the two main professors, one of whom was CIA, were, um, were given, you know, uh, seven-figure fines. What Lauren Summers then did is that he made a comment about women not being good at math which meant that the press on campus and everywhere else all of a sudden were screaming that he's a sexist and everyone forgot about the incredibly complicated case that Harvard was just humiliated in front of everybody. Well, that, that was in the 2000s. Uh, are are you talking the about... Case against, yeah, the case against them was, was, of course, years later. Right. Um, and, uh, well, well, and so you have now an American court saying everything you're saying here is true. What was the Western press saying at the time while all of this was happening in Russia? Well, at the time, I was reading the Post, the Washington Times, the New York Times every day. I, you know, I actually believe that that was a source for information. But um, did, you, did you catch the full page ads in those for Menachap? I, I don't recall that off the top of my head. Um, but. I'm talking about the editorial. I'm talking about how they wrote articles. They were had they had to be called reformers, even though they were actually revolutionaries. The word oligarch wasn't used very often. They were called tycoons or businessmen or whatever it was. Um, but it took a long time for them to even recognize this phenomenon. Um, they referred to, and one of the most irritating things at the time was referring to communists as conservatives. The conservative opposition in parliament says X, Y, and Z. Uh, and you actually had people believing that this has some connection with conservatives elsewhere. Uh, of course, unfortunately, you know, I can't believe we're saying it, but they were right. Yeltsin had zero authority, either in terms of elections or constitution or anything else, to make the decisions that he made. On the other hand, he wasn't making decisions. This was coming from the West. This was coming from the banks. This was coming from Gaidar. This was coming from his, from his, uh, from his organization. Um, the only thing that made him significant was his ability, and he was willing to take the heat for these other people. He suffered so that these other guys would become in, incredibly wealthy. So there was nothing legal or legitimate about anything in that era. Yeltsin was was an important character, but don't exaggerate his his power. One of the Darling Jewish reformers, uh, Boris Nepsov, it had at one point water thrown in his face on television. Do you remember this incident? Water? Yeah, someone threw a glass of water in his face. That, that's pretty tame. Yeah, right. At the time. I mean, they were in 1993. I mean, there was a, an attack on the, on the parliament building with, with tanks. Uh, yeah, that was in October. Yeah, it's not so bad. Yeah, the beginning of October. So I don't, you know, um, and again, this is how this is how Yeltsin ruled. He used violence and force to completely, you know, neutralize his, his opposition. He threw what? Um, God, 100, 100 uh, deputies in, in jail for a while. You know, he's like the Abraham Lincoln of of um, of Russia. This is how this stuff was forced forced on people with with American subsidies. Speaking of American analogs, uh, we've discussed previously on the program the often overlooked figure of Meyer Lansky in American politics. 
and the relationship between the narcotics trafficking criminal underworlds and the state itself. And I see a lot of parallels between Lansky and Berezovsky, not the least of which that they both held Israeli passports. Um, but Berezovsky, his underworld connections, you know, to draw out the analogy, came in the form of Chechnyans. And at the time, uh, I understand that Grozny Airport was a major heroin trafficking point, as well as the ability to start offloading, you know, Soviet arms through Chechnya uh, for profit. So you had these basically these Chechen warlords. And this plays into what eventually happened in, in the late 90s with uh, the Chechen War II, you know, electric boogaloo, so to speak. Can you describe the, a little bit about the relationship between Berezovsky, uh, Chechen warlords, and the reasons for the, inv- the second Chechen War? Well, I've dealt with this at great length um, uh, elsewhere. Some of you know one of my favorite um, figures of the day was General Alexander Lebed, and I have uh, an entire broadcast dedicated um, uh, to him. Um, As I understand it, he made the mistake of attempting to actually do his job. And I understand as well that Berezovsky went to go meet with him, and following that meeting, he made no real further public comments until his unfortunate tragic helicopter accident in, I believe, 2002. Do I have that correct? I'm, I'm pretty sure it's correct. Of course, it's absolutely uh, ridiculous smashing into the side of a mountain because the, the blade got caught on some low-hanging wire, some ridiculous story. Uh, oh, it was foggy. So apparently his pilot didn't know what to do. Um, but don't forget, Berzowski was, uh, at the time, the timeline gets foggy, but he was, I think, deputy security um, advisor to Yeltsin uh, in, I think it was 96. Um, first official post, so if I understand. Mind. Yeah, yeah. He, so this isn't just, this is, and this is what you mean. It's not just in, this is a ruling class. They held on to everything. And so the press would make a big deal that he, you know, negotiated the release of some, some prisoners. But the fact is, is that he was close to the people who you just talked about. Um, and at the time, you know, military discipline had collapsed. The chain of command had collapsed. No one was showing up for the draft anymore. Um, and so what he would, what Berzowski would do is that he would be in regular contact with these separatist leaders with a lot of CIA money. And then once in a while, he would do something heroic, like negotiate the release of, of you know, foreign journalists or something like that. And the press would be aglow about it. Um, so, you know, even today, unless, unless you, you go to, Newspapers like Zoft or whatever it is, you're not going to find um, uh, serious um, analysis of this. But he was involved in strategy planning and everything else um, uh, in terms of, I guess his main contact was um, Udugov, um, who uh, was one of the main Islamic, one of the more fanatical uh, Islamic leaders in the second um, war. And that was his point man for a long time and there was a conversation i remember that this was front page news uh before the dagestan uh fighting um there was a conversation the transcripts either they weren't released or they were only released in in russia um that he was involved in the militants uh planning and strategy 
And he was, as everyone knew at the time, pretty much a, a double agent. He liked the separatist movement because they were going to be, you know, uh, cooperative in terms of the drug trade. And uh, coming in, of course, from um, parts of Afghanistan and elsewhere. The other place where it went was uh, the Ponsky Gorge in, in Georgia. Uh, today, that's been moved to roughly around Camp, Camp Bonsteel in, in um, Kosovo. So it keeps, you know, getting moved west but that was so you essentially have correct uh it's still foggy exactly what he did well also in the lead up to the second chechen war amidst a you know uh, plummeting support for the yeltsin regime as if there was any to begin with uh you had a bunch of very convenient and very high profile bombings that took place targeting in many cases poor moscovites uh, you had bombings in the in the poor parts of the Moscow suburbs that killed hundreds, and you had uh, tax terrorist attacks in the provinces. And these were, of course, blamed on Chechens. Do you think that this is true? Because I know that uh, Lebedev uh, attributed it to the state, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, off the top of my head, I don't remember. I um I spoke about that ages ago. And um, I remember rejecting the idea that this was a um, a state orchestrated, or I mean, if it was a state, you know, again, the state is, that has to be in quotes. You didn't at the time really have, uh, especially at the local level, really a unified administration. Are uh, you, Nick, are you talking about during Yeltsin or Putin's era? This is before Putin. This okay. is before yeah. the Chechen war. This is um, in, you know, yeah. uh, the, the late 90s. Yeah, because uh, right during up to Putin, there was a very controversial apartment bombing. Can, can, yeah, that's that's later. Uh, but yeah, this this took place in the late 90s, uh, leading up to both to the second Chechen war, as well as the NATO bombing of Serbia. Um, what's the question again? Oh, I was responding to Adam. Um, he, right. was, he was asking for clarification as to the time period we're talking about. Um, yeah, most people would think the apartment bombing and then, of course, the uh, movie theater. Um, but at one point or another in the West, that was all attributed to um, elements of the state, especially when, you know, when um, when Putin took over. So there came a point in which it seems like these oligarchs started to see the writing on the walls. I know that uh, Berezovsky got himself appointed to some obscure republic, uh, as did Abramovich, uh, basically for the uh, play for immunity, is my understanding. Uh, why did was that the case? Did they see the writing on the walls, and you know, were they? Cons- starting to feel like there wasn't much left to loot. Uh, what 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 did they know that was going to happen? Because eventually, I mean, these people all did have to flee the country, ending up in either the UK or in Israel, uh, or, you know, speaking before the Council yeah. on Foreign Relations about human rights democracy. Yeah, this is, <laughs> we, we have to understand the context here is that Boris Yeltsin ruled almost entirely by force. There was no constitutional limitations on his power, and that received the the stamp of approval from the World Bank, from the IMF, from Harvard University, and from from Washington D.C. So, as early as as I don't know, summer of 2000, uh, Bar- Barozovsky explicitly said that 
that he's seeing things happening. He called it, you know, we don't want to see a return to authoritarianism in Russia. This is the man that was bankrolling uh, Yeltsin's, um, you know, essentially a terror regime where his opposition was was thrown in prison. Uh, and not just in 1993, but even beyond that. Total media control, uh, total uh, book publishing control, and total control uh, of, of the economy. Um, but remember, in 2000, Berezovsky also still controlled um, the press. So, um, do you remember he was, well, he was a deputy in the Duma at the time. And one of Putin's early initiatives was to take local governorships out of the hands of local strongmen, which is where they were. Uh, there was no legitimacy to these guys. He said they're going to be appointed by Moscow with the assent of the local legislature. And this drove Berezovsky insane. Clearly, there was a, a concern with his profits here uh, if Moscow centralized control over some of these people. Uh, no one cried for these guys. And he couldn't, Berezovsky made this pompous state uh, speech where he can't believe the sacred structure of the Russian state is being, is being violated, that democracy is, is, um, is being violated, vitiated in every way. And pretty soon, Zirinovsky, who they always trotted out times like this, is going to take over. They couldn't quite figure out if it's going to be Stalinist or Hitlerian. They were never quite sure. Um, and so Berezovsky's press began inventing stories. Um, and some of these later on, some of these these bombings were a part of it. Uh, the Kursk um, disaster, um, and of course, at this time also, he was very close to the Washington Post. And you know, essentially, what he did was immediately connect oligarchy to liberal democracy and so-called civil society. And that's when civil society became a buzzword. So, as early as I'd say summer of of two thousand, Berezovsky saw did see the writing on the wall. And when he made that speech on, um, uh, well, he actually resigned. I want to say, yeah, in the summer he resigned um, for that very reason. And that kind of rhetoric, you still hear it today. So again, remember what he was supporting just a few years earlier when his interests were being um, uh, justified and he was becoming a, a multi-billionaire. Uh, that's what well, control so what, what was... Uh, Putin doing at this time? Uh, I know that, so by 1999, you had their oil conglomerate as well as Aeroflot were raided, uh, Swiss banks were freezing their private accounts. Uh, and Putin himself was somebody that, if I understand correctly, Berezovsky initially supported. Mm -hmm. uh, so can you uh, flesh out that dynamic and how it was, what moves Putin made and how he was able to to gain the upper hand in this in the struggle, well, the initial um, investigations into some of these uh, some of these oligarchs, Berezovsky in particular, um, were even earlier than that. Uh, late 1998 uh, up to the spring of 19 I'm sorry 98 to 99, uh, where there was a warrant put out for I want to say white collar crimes that Berezovsky was was a part of. This was under um, a very different kind of, you know, prime minister in, in Guinea Primakov. And um, you had a fight between the, the foreign intelligence in Russia on the one hand and 
um, Berzowski's own intelligence on the other. So this isn't, yeah, this isn't just in 2000. Initially, he thought that, he knew that Yeltsin couldn't function anymore, he couldn't function physically, he couldn't function mentally. There was no way he could continue to, to do the weekend at Bernie's with him and have him just like a, like a marionette. He couldn't do that anymore. Putin, Putin was smart enough to know that initially he wouldn't mind getting a few dollars from these guys. But the minute he was appointed on New Year's Eve in 1999, uh, he went after them. And he was an obscure guy. And he was like a mayor of St. Petersburg. Yeah, Berzowski. Yeah, Berzowski goes back to their relationship. You know, they, they knew each other for some time. Um, but remember, he was in the security services. And he had his own backing. This is I've been saying this for, for a decade and a half now. And it seemed that Putin took out with going after Primakov and almost supporting the Berezovsky case. But that was only very brief. And he realized, Putin knew something very importantly, that, that if he threw all these guys in jail tomorrow, he's going to be a very, very popular man. 1999, uh, Berezovsky campaign for him and his, and his movement. And really, Ort TV was, was pro-Putin, but that didn't last very long at all. And um, it didn't take long um, before the constitutional changes were uh, promoted, and he began to see a, a cut in his in his profits because local strongmen were essential to the oligarchs' function in Moscow. And the minute and, and Putin knew exactly what he was doing. Um, the risk that so, Putin was taking was that the state hadn't been rebuilt yet; the state hadn't been rebuilt at all. So he was going just with a very loose alliance of people uh, from the intelligence services. Uh, to go against Berezovsky. It was an incredibly ballsy move that eventually he won. So what what section of Russian society was Putin able to pull uh, loyalists from? Uh, as Also in the security services, you know, the trigger pullers, etc. Because obviously, you know, there was massive corruption and, you know, it, entanglement with, criminal, with the Berezovsky uh, and Chechnya narcotic syndicate. What? Uh, how was he able to know who to who to trust and who to send after these people who wouldn't betray him? Well, because he, you know, had a high executive position in the intelligence services, he had developed. And remember, he was stationed in East Germany for a long time. He developed a a uh, clique based in Saint Petersburg, uh, and that's exactly it. I mean, he really didn't know. And as always, like all leaders like this, they do have traitors to be found around them. Um, but sections of the population. Uh, it's easier to say who supported the liberals. And it's a tiny group of people already vaguely middle class in the big cities, usually educated in the West, English speakers, who never really identified with either the USSR or Russia, um, that were willing to go with some version of, of Yeltsin's program. But uh, that's a very small number of people. And that group of people hasn't changed since then. So to think that Russians want anything to do with any kind of liberalism uh, of that type is is absolutely absurd. That that's what it's, it's etched into the memory of, of the country. So between three and seven percent, that's being very generous, and that includes uh, media control and money coming in from the West. So speaking of liberalism, uh, privatization, etc. Uh, this is what happened here was very contrary to 
you know, the dogma of Western economists and, you know, so-called political scientists, et cetera, namely that liberalization of a, of a formerly communist regime should lead to, you know, the creation of uh, you know, competitive markets and less centralization of capital, less centralization of power, also an increase in the standard of living. Uh, and all of these things were the exact opposite. Uh, can you comment on this, Dr. Johnson? Well, do you have seven or eight hours? Um, <laughs> this is, you know, the, the, the naivete, the naivete is, was at the time ridiculous. Um, because the economic model exists in a vacuum. But now you're dealing with privatization in a society now with absolutely no identity, with no legitimate governing structures, with a legal structure you have to put quotes around, um, with there being really no distinction between mafia and local local elites. There is no distinction between mafia, local elites, and oligarchs. Um, and of course, no matter what you do, when you privatize, you have people who already have power. You know, when you read Adam Smith and his version of the state of nature, so-called perfect competition, it's similar to, to Hobbes' state of nature in that it's in a vacuum. Not even people. They're, they're, just, they're just concepts um, existing in a purely hypothetical environment without culture or really uh, uh, any social or cultural understanding whatsoever except dollars and cents. Sometimes, you know, this was often done by academics completely outside of, of the Russian arena, imposing this as if people weren't already in power, as if there wasn't a, a mass confusion, as if morality hadn't collapsed entirely, then imposing uh, privatization and expecting something to happen tells me, of course, and I think we all know this, they knew exactly what was going to happen. They knew that uh, people getting a voucher with their share of, of the state enterprises of the country, the region that they live in, was going to be meaningless. You know, what would happen if you gave everyone, you know, you go to the homeless shelter and give them all a million dollars? They're going to be in the homeless shelter a week later. You know, that has nothing to do with anything. These, these um, vouchers were uh, centralized in intermediaries almost immediately. They didn't understand. Well, and it wasn't just the uh, oligarchs in the East who were making off. It was also uh, in the West that people were making a lot of money. The Jews well, were making yeah. a lot of money. Well, that, that's correct. And and the two the two guys, uh, I can't think of his name off the top of my head. Well, you got Mark Rich. Um, yeah, now um, he was the economist. He was chairman there for a while. He's still there. I think Harvard paid part of his fine for him. Um, starts with an S. Uh, this is one of the reasons that he was sued successfully uh, with two very hostile press, um, by the way, at the time, uh, for exactly that reason. And I was saying before, you have the courts saying everything we're saying here right now, that the a handful of our own um, oligarchs, whether in academia or elsewhere, knew exactly where to um, invest because they knew exactly where the money was going to be going, where the, where the next privatization scheme was going to come. They knew monetary policy and everything else. So that means I mean, there was no market. I mean, the market is, is hypothetical to begin with, 
but it couldn't be any more hypothetical uh, at the time. So people getting these vouchers, you know, they didn't understand the system. The law was iffy at best. They didn't understand what this meant, how, how value would function now in, a, in an economy that wasn't, you know, capitalist. It wasn't Marxist. It wasn't anything. It was pure uh, oligarchy. This is one of the reasons that Solzhenitsyn said to maintain some version of the Soviet symbolism and Soviet institutions is absolutely essential. Uh, or else you're going to have absolute chaos, which is, of course, something what happened in, in China and Belarus and, and, and Kazakhstan when it was very successful. Or at the very least, you know, you start with the privatization of simple, small things, you know, de department stores, you know, smaller businesses, things like that, and not the entire industrial economy. <laughs> I mean, yeah, who, who could have possibly predicted that? Uh, which brings well, me to another. Uh, did you want to comment on that? Because I, I have another question. Yeah, well, I I, really quickly, I wanted to ask, like, on top of just the industrial base being so rapidly privatized and very kind of kleptocratic way, what was going on with the transition of the Soviet Central Bank into the Central Bank of Russia? Was that sort of overseen by these same characters, the reformation of the Russian monetary policy and yeah. all of that? Was, was, this, was this another kind of avenue through which Berezovsky and uh, all the rest and Abramovich and all the other oligarchs kind of controlled the evolution working with the West to yeah. kind of... No, I, I get it. See. Um, uh, remember, between the so-called so coup in 1991 uh, to the constitutional crisis in 1993, Yeltsin purged everybody. Anybody who was remotely um, either essentially national socialist, which you had national Bolshevik there, or um, communist in the, in the you know, Zuganov sense. He purged tens of thousands of people. Uh, the security services were, were one, and the, one of the others was the central bank. Um, off the top of my head, I don't know who was put in charge. I had the feeling that they spoke English very, very well. Um, but between 1991 and 1993, uh, that old structure had been completely redone. And people more congenial to the West were, were put in place. There was a claim that even as um, after the so-called coup in 1991, that there was a, um, well, even, even afterwards, the claim that the central bank was trying to deliberately create hyperinflation so as to destroy Yeltsin. Um, and this, of course, is, is mythology, but these kind of stories were planted in the press to give Yeltsin's camp and the West an excuse to purge that organization as well. So it was gradual, uh, and it became, just like any other Rothschild central bank for, for a long time, until really just a few years ago, um, when China and Russia decided, of course, to dump the dollar officially, and the banks that were set up to do this were state-controlled. That eventually was slowly taking over the, the central bank, and now the central bank is, is well, has for the last couple of years been shutting down uh, what's left of the oligarchical uh, financial institutions, uh, which is one of the reasons that the present the man who Putin had chose, again, whose name escapes me for some reason, uh, Mnuchin, whatever his name is, uh, was was chosen because he was a part of this. Putin was able to appoint people to the Russian Central Bank that were getting rid of what was left of the old oligarchical system. And the excuse to do that was the switching over from the dollar to the connection between the uh, yuan and the and the ruble. 
this was completely uncovered in, in the Western press. It was not covered at all in the Western press. But this is how slowly uh, Putin was able to take over the, the central bank, if not legally, uh, if not de jure, then at least de facto. So it's gone through that over the last 20 years, it's gone through that, um, that kind of evolution. Uh, this brings me to another question that I think is, I, I mean, maybe it seems like a naive question, and it's something that comes up frequently in discussions of Jewish power. And namely, it is, what is the end game of these people? Because in the process of looting the entirety of the Russian economy, they basically became, they were on their way to becoming kings of an ash heap. You know, I mean, what 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 was the next step? I mean, they, they had taken capital value, sent it abroad, put it in their private bank accounts. It seems like the whole time they were gearing up to, you know, to eventually leave. Is is that just their instinct in general? What, how, how do you, yeah. how do you look at that? What, because well, obviously the they didn't expect Putin to, uh, to come in and, and shut them down. But at the same time, it seems like, you know, that's just their modus operandi in general. Well, there's a few ways I can answer that. I, I think it's not a naive question at all. And especially for people relatively new to this, um, there's that it is kind of a naive question to say, well, why do they always push too hard? Um, right. Why don't they simply enjoy the tremendous power that they have? Why do they have to become kings of an ash heap, as you say? Well, I think, again, you, you answer your own question by saying that the ash heap, that's insignificant. They don't have a, a nation, usually, oftentimes, including Israel. Israel's is very convenient. I think Israel really is is New York City, but uh, Israel being just a uh, a vacation spot and a place to have to escape uh, prosecution. Um, so it is absolutely not not a naive question, though. The the I think the historical reason for this. I'm not saying this motivates them today, but every time Jewish elites, you see this in 17th century Poland. Once they start gaining tremendous power, you start having a religious revival where people say, this proves that the Messiah is coming. And when the Messiah comes, the Goyim are going to be our slaves. So now they have no incentive to moderate their efforts. In fact, they may be punished for it. Well, rather than the Messiah, they usually get someone like Kim Onetsky, uh, and to a, for a much lesser extent, uh, Vladimir Putin. Now, I'm not saying these people are religious, they're atheists, there's no doubt about that, but that's the historical foundation. They believe that, you know, they're going to reach a point where the goyim simply um, can't resist anymore. Uh, and and uh, but you know, even beyond that, there's always another place to go. Um, and Solzhenitsyn mentioned this too. There's there's you know, the U.S. was not their next place. They had the money to buy up whatever they wanted. Uh, Borzovsky ended up in in London, and if they turn that into an ash heap, they'll go somewhere else. Um, well, so that brings brings me to some questions about America and I don't want to I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush because America in the 20th century hasn't been subject to quite the extremities uh, as Russia however there are interesting parallels especially considering right now there's probably going to be massive waves of bankruptcy across the country in the time to come and there's going to be people in positions to start you know acquiring key infrastructure you know, people who already, of course, have power, but there will be a further centralization of resources and power in America in the hands of our own oligarchs, or rather, I mean, it's an international clique, of course. 
And something I wanted to mention earlier that uh, maybe not quite as big of a deal, but it is. there are interesting parallels, I think, between Chechnya and uh, Mexico and Latin America, namely that those are basically uh, the outsourced narcotic states that the elite are able to, you know, have black market skim through as well as, you know, uh, other forms of criminal activity, human trafficking, sex slavery, you know, assassinations, wet works, etc. And a parallel that I found when doing some reading on this topic was the fact that part of what they were dealing with in Chechnya uh, does uh, match up very much with Mexico and Latin America, namely that you have a lot of these cartel figures in Mexico were trained and uh, given American hardware. You know, just like in Chechnya, they were trained by the Russian military. Some of the most effective, you know, Chechen guerrillas were given Russian training and Russian weapons. And in with the case of the cartels, I, I predicted and I could easily see a situation in which some of these people start to try to go legit into the, you know, get, get in on the game themselves and start uh, buying up using, you know, their narcotics money, buying up American infrastructure. Uh, do you see any parallels here? Would you like to comment on this as well? Well, it's interesting. I had never considered that there's somewhat of an analogy between Mexico and Point South uh, relative to the U.S. and Chechnya and Russia in the 90s. Um, do you mean just then or even today? Because things have changed uh, today. Yeah, I mean, I mean more of then. Yeah, things today are, are definitely very different. But I mean, Russia, Russia's relations, Russia and Chechnya in the 90s versus the United States and Mexico and Latin America today. I, I see a lot of parallels. No, I, I think so. Um, we, uh, you know, this this discussion has been marred by the fact that these questions are extremely broad. You know, kind of you know, what happened in 1995 kind of questions. Um, so it's hard to pinpoint something. Yeah, this is incredibly broad, too. It's easy to be superficial about it, though. And say, well, you have first world, then you have third world. You have illegal immigration, which you did have then and now at the time. Uh, you had um, narcotics traffic, although in the Chechen case, it was coming from elsewhere. Um, in Mexico, I mean, they are a major exporter of heroin, which sometimes people forget. Uh, so it's more than just a transit point. Um, Mexico was never a part of, of the U.S., um, you mentioned the Chechen military. I assume you mean prior to the war breaking out. You know, all these young men have been drafted. You know, if you're 18 years old in the Soviet Union, you had to go you had to go to the draft. So these guys always had military training. They knew how to handle an AK-47. Um, and well, and also interesting is that back then it was you know you had Russian you know uh, Russian military corrupt Russian military figures who had their fingers in the opium fields of Afghanistan, and now it's the Americans who do. Just throwing that out there, too. Yeah, the, look, the United States federal government can crush the drug trade in America tomorrow. Uh, it's been Why done would before. they hurt their bottom line? <laughs> but it's exactly it. In the crash of um, 2007, 2008, the only thing, and this is, I, I've cited a hundred sources on this. The only thing keeping the Wall Street afloat was laundered money, laundered drug money in the billions. It's something that they could count on. Um, they weren't going to ask too many questions as to its origin when they were really struggling. The crash of 2007 was an absolute uh, disaster. Of course, I think we're looking for something else, something worse now. 
Um, but the reticence of politicians to do much about drugs, except you know, symbolic you know arrests and things like that, but leaving the big guys going and even subsidizing them, um, uh, suggests that everyone's getting a piece of this. How can you look at a trillion-dollar industry and not want some of it? It's really hard to avoid it. Um, in court in Illinois, you had members of the Sinaloa uh, cartel claiming that the U.S. you know the EA was a part of it, was subsidizing them, and they claimed, well, that we were, but that was just to uh, fight the other gangs, which of course didn't make any sense. Um, drugs is too big a business for the state to not be involved with, whether it be Vietnam and especially Afghanistan today. Um, although that's mostly a European phenomenon, it's not an accident that the explosion of narcotics in America is connected with the destruction of the Taliban government in um, in that country. But it, obviously it's not a, not a coincidence and it's, it's trip up through Kosovo into, into the rest of Europe. And so long as the Kosovars are willing to fight the Serbs and the Russians, they can do as they please. Um, and, you know, corruption is now institutionalized to the point where it's hard to even tell the difference. Um, so, and that's what, you, as you may have read, I think over the last year, entire police departments in Mexico have been, have been removed and the federal government has taken over. Uh, that may be another parallel since uh, Seattle, I guess, doesn't have a police department anymore. Um, they're, federalizing, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're, they're federalizing in entire big cities, too, because the police are just so bad off. And even corrupt Russian military in the 1990s, they weren't getting their paycheck. Their paychecks were bouncing. And these guys with money from abroad, a lot of drug money, money from Saudi Arabia, uh, the Wahhabist movement, they were getting, uh, not to mention Israel, they were getting uh, they were getting a much bigger paycheck as mercenaries than they were in an army that they didn't even know what purpose it had. Well, yeah, and then you have uh, all these American white boys who uh, have been, you know, running around the desert and pulling triggers for the past, you know, decade. <laughs> who are going to find themselves sooner or later in a country that will not employ them? Where will they go for work? Well, that can be asked about a lot of people. Um, when you have, when you're printing trillions of dollars to bail out banks, as what happened two days after the lockdown was announced in March, which proves it had to have been decided in advance. You can't send two trillion dollars in two days uh, without the corresponding production. You have, not to mention, uh, pressure on the downward pressure on the dollar for a long time anyway. Uh, we're looking at mass inflation. I don't know how the U.S. is going to going to avoid that uh, because the production is way down. You know, cargo is way down. I don't care what the numbers say. What you know, all this money, all this new money floating around. Uh, well, how can it not be in the in the past uh, thirty years? I'd say, uh, actually, after the collapse of the Soviet Union and globalization took a pace with the former communist countries in Eastern Europe and especially China offering the countervailing deflationary labor deflationary uh, forces. Um, the money, the, the inflation, uh, because it, it, it's gone out of the United States to pay for all the imports, that money has gone back into places like West and East Coast real estate, New York in particular, 
Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, Vancouver in the case of Canada. So the inflation has been in certain sectors, but it has not been in the price of goods because the price of goods have gone down because of the cheaper labor overseas. But what we've seen is the increases in things that can't be offshored like healthcare, education, and uh, land and real estate uh, prices go up. And I, I expect that to continue. And I think that is actually one of the big incentives for people who promote this type of economic policy um, to continue it because they benefit from it. They own the assets. The, the asset holders have benefited tremendously from quantitative easing. And I think that'll, that'll continue. Well, don't forget, when you're talking about a, a company in China uh, importing goods into the U.S., you're talking usually about American companies. American companies go over there with a subsidy from the Export-Import Bank. Oh, sure. And, and you know, with much lower overhead now. Sure. A- Apple has made tons of money. The, 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 the labor has not. And that, that's been the, the, the true, yeah. um, I don't want to call it a crime, but I mean, it's, it's, a, it's the true disparity between uh, the, the gains between the different classes. It's, it's the, really the upper 1% that owns these companies that has, have offshored a lot of the manufacturing uh, that have benefited. And the consumer who gets you know, dollops of government subsidies with you know, checks handed out uh, with UBI, I think, going forward, uh, get um, placated, but they're really not sharing in the wealth. And that's that's been controlled by uh, a much smaller group of people, unfortunately. Uh, and speaking of China, I did have a question about them. They, I think, were <clears throat> quite wise in observing the collapse of the Soviet Union and deciding not to take such drastic and radical uh, economic uh, reforms. Uh, they transitioned to a more, more privatized economy much more slowly with special economic zones uh, in the south of China. Uh, and eventually Shanghai and places like that. Uh, and they kept control of a lot of the heavy industry for much longer. Uh, and I, I believe they I started in the agricultural in the sector. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's pretty clear too. But I, I'm wondering what your thoughts are and why the Chinese and how the Chinese were able to manage their transition much question, more effectively. Adam, but... Thanks. Well, you know, most of you know I've dealt with this at, at exhaustive length. Um, and what made the Soviet failure so spectacular is that they had to deal with the so-called economic reform at the same time they tried to build the new state uh, to the extent that any of these were actual reforms or new is is another matter but in china and in belarus which is one of the reasons belarus was so they had, they had a very similar policy they became a what amounts to a national socialist or even a national bolshevik idea um in China, socialism with, with Chinese characteristics is a, is a form of national socialism, very successful. Um, and I think, as we all know, what's missing is, of course, Hindus from Sri Lanka, who tend to control all of the uh, lubrication of, of uh, finance and, and, and these kind of things. But we all, we all are in agreement on that. So, ultimately, you know, where exactly did a lot of these guys end up? Did they end up dead? Did they end up kind of in hiding? Uh, have a lot of them just died of old age or poor health? Uh, you know what? What? Uh, what happened to a lot of the great Russian oligarchs of the '90s? And do they still have their? Tentacles? Some of them got poisoned. <laughs> well, do they still have their tentacles in the country, or do they mostly whatever's left of their empires? Is it mostly focused on 
external attacks on, on Russia? Well, it's not entirely, you know, the notion of, of going legit um, uh, isn't, isn't that far off, even in, in this regard. Um, because, um, well, I don't know. I mean, Vladimir Bogdanov, just, just to use one um, off the top of my head, who is, of course, he's still around. He's still in the oil industry. Some of these guys ultimately um, um, supported Vladimir Putin. He is not uh, um, a Hindu, as you may have noted. But um, some of them simply saw the light in that regard. Some of them supported earlier policy to, within their interest, but now they realize, uh, like, in, you know, like in South Korea in, in the 60s, either you go along or you lose everything. Uh, of course, um, people like Oleg um, um, Deprosca is still around. You've seen the video of him getting yelled at by Putin now and again. Um, you know, Abramovich, who I think was born in 60, he's a little bit older than me. Um, he uh, got involved in, he, he owns uh, Chelsea, the uh, Premier League football club. club. <laughs> um, God, I mean, you know, these guys. Guys, they, they weren't all that old. Um, he is, I believe, the richest person in Israel right now, Abramovich is. Um, you know, these guys, uh, well, of course, you know, uh, Khodorkovsky was a kid uh, at, at the time. Um, Patanin, I think, was born in, in the early 60s. He is still in Russia, one of the wealthiest, wealthiest men in Russia. And I think part of the problem is there's only so much that a president can do when he still is looking to get some of that money that was sent overseas back into the country. Right. And that's, that's a big deal. So uh, some of these guys, you know, they have this international portfolio and, you know, they're involved. They have investments in every continent. They're all over the place. Uh, some became more or less pro-Putin. Some became apolitical. Uh, some are, they generally have places in Manhattan. They're involved in everything. Uh, horse racing, they have these custom-made yachts that get on, you know, late-night TV for some reason. Um, and these guys weren't that old. They're, they're mid-60s they were born. And so Berzowski, of course, is gone. Um, but you have people like Khodorkovsky, who I think speaks for a lot of them as just, you know, this, this uh, subsidizer of, of liberal causes that he fails over and over again. So it really depends. These guys never really had any political views to begin with. So they're able to adjust to whatever they need to maintain their their wealth and power. Well, where do you think these attacks on Putin, or do you think that they have any merit? These attacks that oh well, Putin is an oligarch himself. That you know, there's every year there's a flurry of articles on his supposed net worth. That was yeah. what that whole Panama Papers drama was about, that Putin is allegedly worth $200 billion and that he's hiding it all and that he, he's trying to rob the country blind. You know, what do you make of these accusations? Are they just sort of continuous coordinated projections onto Putin of what these people did to Russia? Uh, or is it maybe true and that there could be a a counterfactual reason as to why Putin might be storing that wealth. Is it for personal protection? Is it for leverage against uh, possible enemies? Why do you, do you think that there's any merit to it? And why do you think these attacks 
continuously pop up. Well, you know, he's been president of Russia for some time now. He's not going to retire a, a poor man. That That's just how it goes in, in every country on the planet. Yeah. Um, but these wild figures, you know, I, I use the word projection all the time. I have a book on Vladimir Putin called Russian Populist, where the introduction talks about American journalists and even politicians projecting their own um, inadequacies onto him. Uh, sins onto him, I think. And, and sins onto him and problems onto him, which, you know, um, everything that they are absolutely guilty of, um, they claim uh, he's guilty of. If he's worth that much money, you wouldn't be able to know about it. No one knows how much the Rothschild family is worth. No one, no one, should, no one can find that out. He wouldn't allow well, it. Like some, a, some say in the trillions. Well, it's a classic case yeah. of uh, crying out in pain as you do the striking. I mean, the funniest part to me about all of this is that when when the Putin government cracked down on these people, you had the Western media whining that, you know, these, you know, multi-billionaires who had just looted and wrecked the entire country are victims of an anti-Semitic purge. I mean, I, I've seen like some beyond of these the pale. documentaries, and uh, the one yeah, about no uh, Kordakovsky was especially yeah, right. incredible. <laughs> yeah, they, they showed him uh, being put in a cage and just being you know treated badly and all this stuff. Um, I love that Russian cage that they, uh, they, they do that, at the trials. That is I so think, good. intentional. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the, so the media good. went into full overdrive for sure well it's it's come well it's not so much anymore because it's, the issues have changed now but um the american state department uh the financial times the economists of london a few others have explicitly connected the future of liberal democracy in russia with oligarchy occasionally even using the term usually with a capital o now they often don't do that but every once in a while, it'll, it'll slip out that this is what they're referring to, that civil society refers to that part of society that's controlled by the wealthy, the only counterparty being the state. When they use a phrase like independent media, they're well aware that a handful of these guys control it. But that is freedom in their mind. Independent means free media, oligarchical media, therefore oligarchy is freedom. They say this over and over again uh, when there's civil society nonsense. So they actually will go I, that far. I have a somewhat relevant but a little bit tangential question uh, that I've always wondered about, and I'm hoping maybe you could shed some light on it, Dr. Johnson, and that is, why is RT so bad? I mean, you know, often I'll, you can see things, I mean, occasionally to, to be fair, they've had they've had their moments, uh, and it is better than American media, which says basically nothing. Uh, but you can often you'll you'll see articles or or you know uh, videos from them that seem almost as if they could have been made in America. That you know they and they've even plucked some American liberals uh, to be hosts on their programs, like Abby Martin. Uh, do you know what's going on there? They came close to being banned. Because they were mentioned in the first NSA report on Russian hacking. Russian hacking actually partially referred to RT, its very existence. Uh, just a few days ago, 
the State Department released its uh, Russian propaganda in America report. I did a, um, a spot with Sven Longshanks, uh, was last Thursday, uh, analyzing it. Um, banning media as a part of some you know, Russian conspiracy against democracy is, is not a hypothetical situation. This is part of the agenda, and they're not shy about saying it. So I'm willing to say at least some of it more recently has been damage control. Now, I love them. You know, foreign policy, they're pretty solid. Uh, yes, Russian yes. politics, I use them quite often. Um, now, and Sven, Sven said not too long ago, he said, you know, he's irritated with their support of Black Lives Matter. Now, they have called the ideology poisonous. But, you know, they, they have different writers saying different things. However, you understand what they're doing. The Chinese are doing the same thing. Um, they're, yeah, they're, they want to destabilize the U.S. Yeah, yeah, they're making fun of them. They're, they're essentially trolling them. You've been saying this to us for years. Now we're saying this to you, and um, yeah. that's, that's why they use. I, I, I don't, I don't think they take it seriously. I think they're they're a lot smarter than that. But they enjoy poking fun at uh, the the regime that way. Well, well, yeah, and and hiring, uh, you know, people who are were at some form or another disgraced or you know cast into the outer darkness from American media is also a, a form. Who of Jesse Ventura? Uh, no, Abby Martin and uh, she like, gets know, having, my, like, on my nerves. I do not and having trust uh, her. Amber Lyons on and stuff. And you know, I mean, credit where it's due. Amber Amber Lyons uh, did the right thing. Uh, we've discussed what that's in the past, but uh, you know, there's there's several such figures, aren't you know, or like American libertarians like Lou Rockwell, who would you know never be you know brought on CNN or something like that. They like I I think it's a fair. If I could sum up Dr. Johnson's answer, it's basically a form of of trolling and poking at the beast and yeah. also damage control. I, I think that that sufficiently answers my question. Yeah, remember, it's a big organization. You know, there's a lot of different points of view there. Generally, they support uh, conservative causes uh, in a very, very general sense. But um, I think the reporting generally is far more reliable than anything you're going to get in, in, in the U.S. And this is why they were fingered in that, in that report uh, in 2016. And they really were talking about you know, eliminating that. I think their app was eliminated from Google for a while. Uh, so this is they were they were on the verge of serious trouble, and they'll get away with it because they'll say this is a, a Russian uh, interference in the elections. RT was a, a vehicle there. Therefore, and the, the State Department report says this is a matter of national security now. So they're still beating this this dead horse, um, and it's. Uh, it's very convenient, especially now with the Belarusian case, because really no one knows much. And um, so it, it's easy to to paint them however you want as this amorphous other. China's certainly the same way. And wouldn't it be great to get the U.S. involved in a war to finally get its economy uh, functioning again like in 1941? <laughs> a war that the U.S. can't win. Can, can I ask you uh, well, a question uh, about ahead, the Russian media? Not Russia today, because I... I will look at it once in a while, but I sort of view it as, frankly, like the inverse of the voice of America. I, I just view it as agitprop, frankly. Uh, it's interesting, but, you know, and, and believe me, I, I don't trust the American media either. But what I'd like to know, because I don't speak Russian, and I know you do, Dr. Johnson, what is your sense? Uh, I'm sorry? I can read it. I can't speak it. Okay. Okay. Well, that's that's better than I can. I can yeah, do it. Do and very that's, good. That's really to my question. What is your sense of what the thought inside Russia, at least at the more informed circles, 
as to what's going on with this COVID-19 stuff. Do they view it? I don't think they were part of any plan. Maybe they were, but do they view it as some sort of a American CIA thing? Is it a Chinese thing? I've never heard anybody pin it on Russia, but um, no. who, who, what do you who, think who they, they think? Who do you mean by they? Um, higher circles, intelligence services, uh, people close to Putin if possible, but anybody who is in a position to know uh, from intelligence gathering what actually is, what actually is going on. Because oh, I, I, don't, uh, I don't trust our media. Yeah, well, of course not. Anyone who trusts American media is, 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 should be put in a padded room. I mean, you trust it because you, you want to. You want it to be true. No, uh, it's um, starting in March and early April, it was pretty much a consensus both in Russian and in English that this was, you know, something either was, was created by the U.S. or is being used by the U.S. Um, and they pointed out very early on something that I didn't know at the time, that the Wuhan lab is, you know, has investments from all over the planet. There's doctors there from all over the planet. It's a completely internationalized uh, body. It's it's not a, not a Chinese state body at all. Uh, when you're getting subsidized from major banks and corporations all over the place, including including the U.S. government. Uh, so even if you can pinpoint it to that lab, it's well that doesn't mean China as some abstraction. So um, now Lukashenko in Belarus couldn't be clearer about it. He said this is about control. This is about um, making oligarchy pure. This is about taking over uh, small businesses. And, and you know, he goes. He's been saying this from from the very beginning. Um, uh, it's less pronounced in in Russia, but that the CIA is to some extent a part of this, either in its creation, its dissemination, or in how it's dealt with, uh, is pretty much a consensus, as far as I know. Well, it seems like the game the world over now is to, you know, set off a wave of bankruptcies and a recession in order for the money power to come in, scoop it up and consolidate. So, I mean, it is germane to the topic that we were discussing today. And I understand that the events in Belarus are still developing, but I think it would be appropriate to close the program talking a bit about them. Maybe tell our listeners what they should be looking out for if they're interested in following what's about to be taking place. Uh, what they should be paying attention to. Well, last, I believe this is front page news, at least for today. Um, Lukashenko, and I've been writing on him for so many, so many years now. He is some, he is a national Bolshevik, almost a, a national socialist type. Um, an extremely successful, successful ruler. One of the most popular men in Belarus, by the way, in a recent poll, the most popular politician in Ukraine, strangely enough. Um, in Eastern Europe, in places, even parts of Latin America, he's, he's seen as a, as a model. Um, he didn't, Belarus didn't suffer what, what Russia suffered in the 1990s. Um, and it was a, a variation of, of the Chinese plan. Their development index, uh, their indices have, have been excellent. Um, they have one of the lowest rates of infant mortality in the world. They have an extremely advanced, uh, healthcare system. Um, they have a, a state-run central bank, which is not insignificant, of course, and they have Russian protection. What happened is that Lukashenko, um, this had nothing to do with the election, by the way. The rioting occurred because there was an exit poll prior to the election 
that said Lukashenko is probably going to win between 75 and 80 percent of the vote. That's the riot. Now, I'm not sure if the American press is talking about the election. If they are, they're, it's, it's incorrect. This occurred before the election, or it started before the election. And the Russian press has been pretty clear. This, this didn't happen. You know, you have well-organized movements prior to the election when this report was released, um, springing into action. Clearly, it was, it was well-organized. Belarus has been a target for the West for a long time because of its success under this, what I've called the social nationalist um, point of view. I laid this out in Occidental, not Occidental Quarterly, the other one. Uh, I forget I forget the website uh, uh, in detail that he was a social nationalist. Observer or dissent? Uh, observer, I think. I, I can't keep him straight. I mean, I'm all over the place. It's, it's the observer, yes. Yeah, yeah. I, and, I, and I mix them up too. And it was many years ago. And it, it made kind of a splash because no one really knew anything about him at the time. And I go through all of the figures. I mean, he this he was a, of immense success. He paid off all most of his debts. He threw the IMF out of the country. Uh, he went close to Russia. Um, and then every time there's an election, the CIA is there. They claim before the election happens that it's invalid. Um, the problem, though, with the with the regime's um, agenda or narrative is that he usually wins the percentage of the vote that's connected really with his popularity. So August 1st, um, a, a Russian polling agency said that um, almost, um, well, almost 90% are going to vote in this, in this election and 72% of Belarusians are going to vote for Lukashenko. He got higher than that. But this was, you know, sometime prior to the to the uh, to the election itself, and this is mirrored all over the place. So what he received in terms of the percentage of the vote is roughly his basic popularity in the country. The unemployment rate in Belarus is 0.2 percent. You've had some decline, of course, because of COVID, but nowhere near like you've had uh, elsewhere. Um, you know, you have a a, a stable society in, in every way. Inflation's roughly 4%. When you have a state-controlled bank with Russian support, it's, it's much easier to control it. Uh, you had high turnout. Now, of course, this isn't being mentioned. Um, I've been reading observers all over the place. Uh, one of the spokesmen was from um, Azerbaijan, who said that this was a, a well-organized election, and it's in the Federal Election Commission's interest, or Central uh, Commission's interest, because they know that the tiniest little thing, the West is going to say it's invalid. So if anything, they overdid the protections. Um, this woman uh, uh, claims to have entered into this election uh, out of love. They, they created this love story, uh, almost like a movie. Her husband went to jail because he allegedly beat up a woman on the street, and it was videotaped. She says, out of love. Of course, out of love. I have no idea what happened. He's a blogger. I'm sorry, he's a YouTuber with 150,000 subscribers, according to the Washington Post, which is so they're probably exaggerating. So if you're in Belarus and you have a liberal blog of maybe between 100,000 and 150,000 subscribers, it makes perfect sense to say, I'm going to run for president now. Well, um, and that's, that's what he did. But of course, he couldn't be registered because he was in, in a lot of trouble. So his wife... Um, took up the mantle and is doing this to get his 
get her husband uh, out of jail, or at least out of trouble. That's the story that they're going with. And, you know, yeah, these people have the command of PR firms and universities and libraries, and this is what they come up with? It's, it's, it's laughable. I mean, you even hear violins in some of these explanations. Um, and she doesn't really have much of an agenda. What she does have is straight out of the CIA playbook. Of course, she spent most of her time outside of Belarus. She speaks perfect English, which is no shock to anybody. She lived in Ireland for a long time. Uh, typical, you know. But you don't just have a YouTube um, program with a, with a few subscribers and say, oh, I know what I'm going to do. It's time to run for president. Does Lukashenko even speak English? I don't think so. <laughs> That's a sign of a good Eastern European leader if he doesn't speak English. I'm pretty sure. I mean, Putin doesn't either. It's very, very weak. I yeah. heard him sing happy birthday one time. And it was awful. Um, <laughs> and he had a shirt on, believe it or not. So, you know, um, now Lukashenko is, he is, you want to use words like base. You can't get any more than, than him in Europe at the time, uh, today. And this has, been, this has been going on for a long time. And he's been there for a long time. And he's well, very this is a story. So that's that, that's this alleged um, uh, opponent um, who has never been threatened by you. She, she voluntarily left the country with all her paperwork. She was led over the border, uh, and she did not ask for protection. Her own staff said she didn't ask for protection. The, the, the press just invented a story. And it's all about love getting her poor railroaded husband out of jail. And it's, you know, you think they could come up with something better than this. But that's what this whole thing is about. But remember, the rioting started before the election, not afterwards. You know, it's interesting. Before the show, we were I think I'd mentioned to Adam um, that this this candidate, this female that is trying to overthrow Lukashenko is currently hiding out in Lithuania. And, um, you know, I had, I had said that uh, Lithuania at one point technically owned pretty much all of what is now Belarus, part of Ukraine in the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth. And if you think about it, if you look at Belarusian history, uh, post-1990, this is probably the longest continuous run of Belarusian sovereignty in many centuries. Um, Belarus has nearly always been kind of ruled by foreigners or been, you know, under the yoke of foreigners. And uh, it, it has never had the opportunity to develop independently the way that countries in Europe, such as France and England and, and others have managed to do. And so in that sense, if you if you think of Lukashenko is leading this barely industrialized, you know, barely uh, formulated country out of the ambiguities of the collapse of the USSR into kind of a, a national future is extremely successful and that he managed to keep a country that effectively has never uh, really existed on its own, uh, coherent and kept it from falling apart, you know, tried to forge a national language, national identity that is not just little Russia, uh, that, you know, has some unique cultural characteristics. And I, I think that whether or not people agree with Lukashenko, whether he's a bit long in the tooth or whether he, you don't find him, you find him extremely successful, I think you have to at least commend him for effectively creating a country out of uh, a piece of territory that has for, I want to say, maybe 700 years up till now, uh, been 
under the yoke of one or more foreigners. And prior to that was just a collection of princely estates in, in Kiev and Rus. It was you know, hardly a, a country at all. And so, he, you know, for that, I think he, he deserves credit as the first real uh, king or sovereign of Belarus in a long time, very long time. Well, I'm not sure how he would react to that exactly, but um, keep in mind that Belarus is a highly industrialized uh, first world state in, in every way. Um, so that's not, you know, and far more so than, than much of the, the Russian Federation. It has a huge electronic sector. It's one of its big industries is um, oil refining. It's a uh, transit point, transportation hub for both oil and natural gas coming from Russia to um, uh, into Europe. Uh, and of course, it's very close to Russia politically. Now, as far as the Grand Duchy of Lithuania is concerned, of course, this was a big preoccupation of mine for years and years and years. And you know, the, GDL, uh, the GDL was was Russian. I mean, it had been prior to the Treaty of Lublin, which connected Poland and, and Lithuania, it was a Russian Orthodox state, a very large one. And um, the, you know, the church run by the famous Joseph Sultan, and uh, it was a substantial Russian um, uh, mini empire after the Union of Lublin, and, and Poland, of course, being much uh, larger, being much wealthier. Um, was able to chase much of the Russians out. And a lot of the Russian uh, noble families and from there on in had, came from the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. Um, so it became not Polonized, but it became um, a bit more westernized uh, after that and, and feudalized. Now, even today, Belarus has a strange identity. I can't, I can't deny that. It's split in half. You have a strong Polish influence in the West and a Russian influence in the East. Belarusian language I always thought was weird. I can never get a handle on it. I have very little reason to to read it uh, because I just, I just read Russian and usually everything is fine. It is very distinctive though. Um, but Lithuania, you know, is still held in high regard. The old Grand Duchy is held in high regard by Belarusian nationalists all over the place. Uh, they use that symbolism constantly. It's not a bad thing at all, um, but your thesis is 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 solid. I think he would like the idea that he is not only establishing an identity, an orthodox identity, uh, and he is he is an observer despite being you know he was actually never a member of the Communist Party, which is bizarre, being that he ran a collective farm for a while, um, and he's promoted to church at every possible possible turn. He has created this modern Belarusian idea. Um, and is part of the reason why he's he's so popular. The Poles in the West are, you know, you have when you have a religiously divided society, you don't have much of a future. But with a with a with a leader like him, that can be that can be overcome. It is an Orthodox society. Um, off the top of my head, I don't know what the Poles in the West think about all of this. I do believe he's Lukashenko is popular everywhere, um, and he was really good at getting you know pushing getting out the vote. Up until this this election began, because um, of course he knew he was going to win. He knows what the numbers say. So uh, what you're saying there is is not is not entirely off. And um, I don't know, I'm just wondering what he would say about that. I think I think the last part of it he would love. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I suspect he would. would think? But it, it's it's not. I'm not trying to fawn praise on him. But I, you know, ultimately I, I do. If you 
if you look at the, the history of that particular region, uh, you know, he has done something sort of incredible. And it, it is also incredible. You know, we, we began this by talking about the oligarchs of, of Russia who collapsed Russia for a decade. Uh, you know, it is incredible that he managed to evade that kind of collapse himself in the 90s and managed to ensure that many of these people didn't immediately just pick up and leave and move next door to Belarus, which could have been totally feasible. I mean, some of them did do that or, you know, uh, they helped create people that did that in Ukraine. And so those, you know, there were people that basically just moved next door and hid out in Ukraine. And when the time came for Ukraine to fall under CIA uh, auspices, they were ready and waiting. They had been waiting there for you know two decades or longer to enact this revenge. Um, and I think that Belarus could be maybe the, the ideal future for some Eastern European states, try and reform a, a, a sort of national religious identity that focuses on stopping outflows of people, you know, stop people from migrating and leaving, stop the brain drain, focus on your internal industry. And it could be that uh, that even if Lukashenko goes away or, you know, his family line doesn't retain power over Belarus, I still think that his legacy will be kind of the the future legacy of, of Eastern Europe that's not Russia. You know, you'll have kind of the Russian influence, but you really have the legacy of uh, Lukashenko as the ideal model for one of these smaller European states. Well, you did know that for the last 15 years, I've made that exact argument. I've been making that exact argument. If you go back to my archives and the archives of Radio Albion, I've been making that argument in, in much greater detail uh, for as long as I've been I've been doing this. I've been a major, you know, every book that comes out on him, I'm always cited in it, either negatively or positively, as being one of the guys that that's defended him. Um, and you're just using the numbers. You know, ideologically, he's pretty firm, too. In a much smaller country, it's easier to do that. Uh, the world is, the eyes of the world aren't on him all the time, like, like, in, like in Russia. But that argument I've made over and over and over again, he's extremely successful. As the rest of Eastern Europe was was collapsing, he arrested the privatization that created the oligarchs elsewhere, and rebuilt society. He's maintained the old communist symbols. He has a KGB, but the ideology that motivates them is nowhere to be found. He's a nationalist in every sense of the term. He's a, a Christian socialist in the sense Dostoevsky called himself that. Solzhenitsyn called himself that. Uh, but li listeners of this who've been following me for a long time, now this has been an argument of mine, a, a major argument of mine throughout my entire career. One last question, I think, uh, as we kind of wrap up here. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about our conception of, of this history. Is this the sort of standard accepted historiography in Russia, in Belarus, on, on these subjects? You know, do, do Russians, the average Russian kind of have this general sense of, of what the 90s was, that they all kind of agree the 90s was this terrible time where these oligarchs were ruining the country, and regardless of how they feel about Putin, they do acknowledge that uh, there were certain individuals who worked with 
the United States worked with Western powers, Western interests to kind of rob the country. Is that kind of standard accepted history? Yes, it is. And even if they're not, I mean, you know, they're, they're going to be taught some variation of that um, in school. I've not read a, a like primary school textbook on the subject, but this is why liberalism can never, has no future in that part of the world. It's going to be eternally associated with the meltdown of the 1990s and the destruction that was far worse than anything Stalin ever put out. Um, and this is why, no matter what the CIA does, no matter what Amnesty International does, they pump money into these groups and they can't get any more than 5 or 10% at best. And this is why. Talking about these guys, talking about the Hindus, all this, this is street corner stuff. This is stuff that's done in the classroom. It's, it's a different world there. And the understanding of, of, uh, of history is completely different. And I'm willing to say that everything that the average educated American believes, normie American believes, is a story. It's myth. Um, and when you go to other parts of the world, they laugh at what the average American is taught in um, high school and college. Yeah, they live in a bubble. And so this is precisely, uh, or some variation of this, is how uh, they understand it. And this is why Putin and Lukashenko remain extremely popular, uh, even during times of economic downturn. Well, if we can get our uh, our shit together, so to speak, in the West, and we can put the screws to these people, they will have nowhere left to run. It's got to stop somewhere. Um, but we, we hardly have an organization anywhere. You know, we're, we have millions of people. There's no doubt about it. But, you know, we can complain about Trump all we want. We're not doing anything. Um, it's, it's depressing. It's not necessarily our fault. And a lot of us are scared to death because we know we do one thing. We're going off to jail. Especially if it's against the BLM. Like the, the St. Louis couple is etched into my brain forever. Uh, what's going to happen? Um, but uh, I have the feeling that this COVID thing is radicalizing people. Uh, people who never gave a damn about politics before are not taking the government seriously for the first time in their lives. This can backfire on them. They're taking a huge chance here. And they know it may backfire. And uh, white people being singled out for violence, uh, after a while, it's going to penetrate even the American skull. You're going to comprehend this. And um, this may, in the medium term, be a good thing in terms of radicalization. Spasiba, Dr. Johnson, and Dosvidaniya. Uh, I appreciate it. Thank you. You are very welcome.
Yeah. 